Welcome to Access to Perspectives Conversations, the podcast for bridging academic landscapes. At Access to Perspectives, we provide novel insights into the communication and management of research. Our goal is to equip researchers around the world with the skills and enthusiasm they need to pursue a successful career. You will get insights around the topics of scholarly reading, writing and publishing, career development, project management and research integrity, all embedded into open science practices. Learn more about our work at accesstoperspectives.org. Okay, so here we are. Welcome back, listeners. And I'm glad to welcome Elliot Lum. You might have heard of him in a previous capacity called Pira, I'm to talk about. Now we... Um, we're very much happy to welcome you, Elliot, um, to the show to report to us mostly about signals. Um, and also, uh, yeah, your journey, how you got here through your studies, your research interests, your your passion, what's drive, what's what's basically moving you around in this world, and why you now spend a lot of your time in the day on uh, working on research integrity. So Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I'm uh, looking forward to speaking with you. Okay, if you could just start with giving us a short um, snapshot of, uh, well, your English, start from a geolocation. What did you study at uni? Was it also biology? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, so I did, uh, I did medicinal chemistry. Oh. Um, so that's why I did my I did my PhD in medicinal chemistry. It was uh, kind of looking at a new drug for asthma, um, one that kind of didn't increase heart rate, um, mm. which kind of the classic you know inhaler ones do. Um, yeah, so I did this at University of Nottingham, and it was a collaboration University of Nottingham and Monash University, which is in Melbourne. Um, but, you know, at the end of the four years, I uh, I didn't really like being in the lab. It wasn't wasn't for me. So, you know, I moved into publishing. It kind mm -hmm. of seemed like a, I, I guess it's something that a lot of people make, right? You're still kind of connected to academia, um, mm -hmm. but you're more working with people instead of sort of chemicals or cells. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I started working at Frontiers. It's the, I'm sure most people know <laughs> Frontiers is at this point. So the Open Access Publisher. So I, I was working in their research topics team, so helping people build these article collections. Um, so I managed a team there, and then you know I, I moved into strategy and planning. Um, I was kind of interested in this high-level strategy uh, type, type roles. Um, so in that, I you know I did a variety of things, helping teams to kind of connect their processes, help teams be more efficient, look for new opportunities, and. And kind of part of this was learning as much as I could, I think, about how a business works, mm -hmm. um, because I had an intention, I guess, of starting my own startup. Mm. Um, then in... Wait, so you already knew yeah. you run your own thing, but at the time, were you sure it was have to do with publishing of some sort? Or maybe because you... Were... I think so. Well, I, I think that I kind of have this... I'm not sure it sounds like silly to say, but a kind of almost like a, a desire to kind of like make positive change somewhat, like to make something like a little better mm -hmm. in the world. And I, I think I always used to think that was 
that that was through academia and that's how I could do it you know if you do medicinal chemistry the dream is that you're going to make this 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 great drug that cures something right and so um and when I went into frontiers I realized that through business you can also really create change in a in a very positive way so when you when you figured that you want to start your own business mm -hmm. uh, while working at a publisher and then you said okay you you saw that um you want that you can also um change the world to the better through publishing or through industry approaches so okay. what was it at the publisher that you saw you where you could invest yourself to also contribute something meaningful to society as you mm -hmm. you knew you could do as a researcher okay. yeah yeah so, so i think because i was just publishing right and publishing is, is very interesting and there's lots of moving pieces that are constantly changing um but there are also there are lots of problems to solve i suppose um within publishing um and you know ultimately what i landed on initially was peer review um i think a lot of people start on peer review <laughs> when they're <laughs> entrepreneurial in in academic publishing um i think mm -hmm. it's one place that we all see problems but but it's really hard to change um as as i found and you know and i think a lot of people have found themselves mm -hmm. um but i i think yeah, i think probably if i if i if i'd placed myself in a different industry uh, mm -hmm. straight after my phd i could imagine that i would have wanted to create a startup in in something else but i think as luck has it <laughs> it's in publishing and i think this is very good you know for, for me because i um I really enjoy publishing, and I, I really like the people within um, within publishing. So I, I think it's a yeah, mm. a great thing for me to be in. To be doing. Okay, cool. So then, okay, then that's a that is an uh, what is that an e easy? Well, not easy, but it's, it's a small, relatively small step to go and fix peer review. So you you started peer. How did how did that happen? <laughs> When was the, yeah. like looking back, what made you decide, okay, I'm going for it. I'm starting a company, inviting, you know, like people to join the team and then running the show to fix peer review. So I do actually remember the moment <laughs> that I realized what it would be, I think, mm -hmm. uh, for PRF is that, so I had you know, this notion that I want, would like to have a startup and I'm, I'm looking around at these problems and, uh, you know, I was reading loads of kind of books around this at the time. And, and what I was reading at one point was this book called um, The Lean Startup. Uh, I mean, every I think everyone that's an entrepreneur has probably, probably read it. Um, and... It was talking about this one chapter. Which it was talking about this, this startup in America. It's, I think it was it wasn't DoorDash. Anyway, it was some kind of delivery service, and it spoke about how um, they didn't build an app or anything to begin with. They just literally like knocked on someone's door and asked them what they want from the supermarket, and then <laughs> went and got it for them. Okay, and then when they got feedback and it helped them eventually design this this product, mm -hmm. and. And that was kind of like a light bulb moment in some ways, because I think 
from the people I'm speaking to, it, it really felt like I needed to be technical. So I had to you know, write code or I had to have a co-founder like ready to go who mm. was technical to, to even begin starting a startup. And, and I didn't have... I didn't have a friend or, you know, colleague that was ready to, who was, could write code really well and was ready to start, start it with me. Okay. So, um, so this always seemed like a blocker, but then I realized, you know, I could, I could just do it myself <laughs> and I can just, you know, I don't need uh, a technical product. I can just um, handle these things you know, mm. by hand, essentially like, like these people go to the supermarket. Uh, and I knew what peer review process looked like, and a lot of my work was to do with making processes more efficient. Um, and we, know, I think, we all know that the peer review process has lots of problems, and um, and so yeah, it, it was kind of like, well, I can just do it right. And from that point, I then started developing this idea of what it would look like, why, what kind of specific problems are in the process it was, it was solving, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And then over the next kind of like five months that idea developed and you know at some point I decided that I would start saving money <laughs> to to support myself for a little while yeah. um while there was no you know income or investment mm. yeah another pain <laughs> yes yeah, so, I mean I, yeah, yeah I also didn't have any seed funds just hit the road <laughs> running or going walking <laughs> pacing myself mm -hmm. um Client acquisition, partnership building, the whole, all the things that you learn as an entrepreneur. <laughs> but mm. I, I can relate to that light bulb moment. Like suddenly it strikes you as an entrepreneur and you're like, oh yeah, I can fix this. <laughs> and you don't know where to take the strength from, but it just happens. Like, um, what were the exciting things in the beginning, in the early phase? Like, maybe I can share mine. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I, yeah, go for it. What was no, 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 just to give you a head, like, um, like some, I don't know. Um, I think it's like it's it's an explorative phase. You kind of know what you're doing, you know, you can solve an issue. And well, I suddenly thought, okay, I have an idea of how it should work, and then I still had to build the expertise to actually teach others. But, or in, in the case, more of a product. But for me, then that might have been Africa Archive, where I'm, sh I'm sure it works, but how can I convince people of actually using it? Because it's, it's, it is a no brainer to adopt, but then to encourage the target audience of here, this is the thing that you need. It's not, it turns out it's not so obvious to them. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it was exciting, <laughs> but also frustrating at the same time to me. But then the learning curve. And those moments of, oh, yeah. And then when people actually realize what that product or that tool or service can do for them and seeing the appreciation, I found that quite exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think some of the, the, the learning kind of part, they're kind of constant, <laughs> difficult problems. Um, it's quite you know exciting in its own way. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the kind of... Yeah. You get to speak to lots of people, okay. Like you're right. You, you wouldn't in my like regular job, whatever as did before that. You know, you wouldn't just yeah. speak to all these you know, people in, in different in different publishers, um, um, and it kind of enables you 
to do that and be able to just drop someone an email in some publisher you've never engaged with and then have a conversation with with mm. someone. Um, and it sounds quite good. And, and, you know, I didn't, you know, like I said, my first job was at Frontiers and that was quite an internal job. And then, so I didn't really have a network throughout publishing. And you know, from this, from having PeerRef, that enabled me to talk to, you know, lots and lots of people within. Mm. And so, yeah, and that, that was quite exciting. Um, and, you know, fun too, because you met, like, yeah, loads of great people now. Mm. Uh, um, but yeah, I think those two things were the most kind of, yeah, <laughs> exciting right, right at the beginning. Um, yeah. And then, uh, yeah. So, but PRF really looks like uh, an, an easy to adapt solution to a, a huge gap in the system, so to say, because um, as a reason, like whoever's re listening, editors and publishers would know how difficult it is to find reviewers. On the other hand, researchers tend to be approached by publishers. Oh, can you review that article for us? I'm not going to compensate you, but surely you want to because you have the expertise. Um, what not? And then more and more of such inquiries come into your mailbox. And now Pirev is here to make that whole process easier for both parties. Isn't what? Well, should we speak of it in the past already? <laughs> or is it? Um, yeah, I think. <laughs> uh, so, what? Well, I mean, we spoke spoke about this earlier. Um, that it's probably still early in the process of changing the system towards making the necessary workflows. Know that we have so many research articles being published in getting coverage in finding reviewers who have the necessary expertise, the global sensitivity of, um, so to avoid all these biases that have um, become an actual issue or have always been an issue, but now being addressed by many organizations. And um, from how you and I have been working together to bring African scholars into both positions that PRF is servicing the researchers and who are then the reviewers or to be reviewers, but also editors. Uh, where am I going with this? So now, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and then we, we said before, before the session now that it's, it's, it's so early and maybe the market is not ready for a service like PRF just yet, or would have needed some seed investments to have like a longer uh, time, more time available to, to encourage the market. Uh, how do you say that? Um, so what, what did, what made you decide to eventually, was it the opportunity now with, with the research signals where you saw, okay, here's something that's a quick fix. It's easy to adopt, it's no brain. And also I can have a better proof of concept kind of thing. Oh, not proof of concept, there's a whole other issue you're addressing with signals. We'll explain mm -hmm. what and how in a minute, but what made you make the decision to switch? Yeah, so the idea of, of journal independent peer review wasn't kind of like a, a new you know, concept. Um, people had tried before, uh, so Rubrik tried, Axios had tried. There are other you know, products or platforms that are available now. Uh, like review commons and 
research square. And when I started Peer Ref, what I thought was different from kind of rubric and Axios, which were say six or seven years before, um, was a kind of rise in preprints. Right. So um so we had you know these pieces of research on the internet that, that needed reviewing. Okay. And, and that we could we could do that. Um and right at the time, you know, this was just after it was within you know, COVID, uh we saw this huge increase in the amount of preprints. There was this hockey stick um of, of the out the, you know, the amount of preprints being published. Um you know, assumingly that was going to continue <laughs> going up and up uh, until until it was you know as, as many as journal publications. Mm. Um, but it but it it stopped. You know, it, it did have that big growth in say 2020, 2021. Um, but then it, it's plateaued. You know, uh, around there. So this this kind of huge change in how people publish like it, it didn't really happen. So. Um, one of these kind of reasons for starting, for thinking peer could work this time, or journal independent peer review could work, um, kind of stopped being true in a sense, but for me. Um, I think another part, you know, aside from the obvious that it just wasn't gaining traction, um, you know, is that we weren't trying to solve a specific problem. Uh, we we're trying to solve lots of problems, I guess. But it was that we were trying to change an entire process, right? You know, where and how peer review is done. And this has tons of stakeholders, right? This has funders, it has institutions, it has researchers, it has publishers. And then the publishers have different people. They have the editors, they have you know, um, other publishers. So trying to convince all of those people to like change this process is incredibly challenging. Um, and you're having to come up with a different solution, essentially, for each of their individual problems. So this was, I guess, a, on the scale that I was working at, was, you know, almost impossible, <laughs> I guess. I, I, sorry, as in. And, and yeah, as I, as I mentioned previously, you know, I was doing a lot of work to, you know, get people onto the platform and then, help them you know, get their reviews and find reviewers, et cetera. Um, and this is very challenging in its own right. Uh, mm. And it just, the amount of people, you know, wanting these reviews and the amount of people wanting to do the reviews, um, this was not getting, you know, easier yeah. over time. You know, there wasn't more people kind of lining up to, 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 to get these reviews. So, mm. so it just seems, you know, kind of like well we can just keep pushing pushing you know um but it, it it got to the point where it didn't it didn't seem to make sense to me to to continue and actually i could spend some time that i had to explore you know other problems you know more more specific problems that people were experiencing and try to find solutions mm. to that and so um so this is where I guess the beginning of well, not necessarily the beginning of signals, but the idea of the idea for signals started. So, um, see so at the time, and this is April, I guess, of uh, last year. You know, all the all the Hindawi stuff is happening. So all these retractions and 
um, you know, research integrity was really at the front of everyone's minds. And it's just this huge problem that that there isn't really a solution to. And so, mm. yeah, it was a it's just a a very good area to look at if you if you're trying to, you know, solve a problem for publishers. Okay, so if I can pause it for a second. So mm -hmm. from your experience with PRF, would you say that we need to uh, go back to fewer publications, back to quality away from quantity, because we've just exceeded and exhausted the community? And maybe PRF is a prime example or proof, proof for that observation. Because there's just so too many articles to be reviewed and researchers tend to, if all those reviews are to be done by researchers, there's not enough time for them to do research anymore. I mean, it's not that they only have to <laughs> reviews, they also have to do all the grant writing and there's not, but how much, there was actually, um, there's actually surveys going around and, and um, reports from these surveys, how researchers spend a huge amount of time on reviews, but also most important, uh, most of the time goes down to administrative work, including grant writing. And like, how much time is there to actually do research? And isn't that the job that they're being paid for? And then also teaching. But so, what's your what's your conclusion from PRF? Is there something, mm -hmm. or if you dare to to give advice to the community, like? <laughs> So I, I wouldn't say I've come to a conclusion because this I, I have a I have a current opinion, <laughs> um, and that will probably change, um, and it constantly kind of changes. So I think I think more information is better. Essentially, I, I think that we need to put as much inf as much useful information out there as possible. Sure. So with every like article, you know, there should be lots of all of the kind of data and code associated with it. Okay, so we, we need more and more of that kind of information. Um, and essentially anyone, any time that someone does some research, you know, if that, you know, if it was a successful piece of research, if it was a failed piece of research, whatever, I think it should be accessible to someone else to see oh. it, okay? Um, so I do think there should be, <laughs> I think there should be more output of, of right. I'm research, not saying we should stop to I... publish. I'm I'm just saying we should publish meaningfully and then see the the actual research output. Like is what my mm -hmm. mantra nowadays is it's not the research <laughs> article but the data set. And yes the research article is a packaging to make it look nice and, mm -hmm. and comprehensible. But we need to make sure to share data fairly mm -hmm. like kind of accessible uh, interoperable and reusable with an emphasis well, on reusable for which the other um, letters are the prerequisite. Mm -hmm. And then yeah, so... for needs of your um, publications, we will cut through all the crap because then PhD students wouldn't have to do all these experiments, which others have already tried multiple times mm -hmm. and hundreds and thousands of times in many subjects. Um, but it would be obvious, okay, let me just look it up. If somebody else has tried, oh yeah, look, they did, and it didn't work, surprise. And then you can decide, okay, should we try another way? Or do we take this for granted, it just doesn't work, so we can try something else. Mm -hmm. um, exactly, so so I think that's kind of argument for kind of more research to be you know, out there. But when I think of, I think if we're talking like publications, we're thinking of this, mm -hmm. well, or I guess I am now thinking of like curated 
you know, research. So, mm -hmm. um, and then I, I think there should, I'm not sure, that, that's where I think maybe there should be kind of less of that, right? So um, it's easier to find the stuff that you're, there's a high likelihood of finding important. Mm. Um, and then that's the stuff where you go through, you know, very, that's the stuff that we really rigorously peer reviewed. The stuff that's, if, if an article gets used, you know, gets viewed a hundred thousand times, yeah. that should have really rigorous peer review. Whereas if there's something, you know, any, some piece of research and it's a negative result and it's used, it's viewed 10 times, then there's much less need for that to have the same level of, of scrutiny. Oh, okay. Well, that's now a brain twist on my <laughs> of the day brain because I would argue against, but let's not go into that rabbit hole. But, what a negative result. <laughs> but that's my probably my opinion today. <laughs> oh, okay. um, but I, but that's for me saying you know because if we right. publish absolutely everything, I get you. Yeah. Then we can, we probably can't have yeah. rigorous pre-published peer review. Yeah, but okay. I'm just but... putting this. Like from when you publish something on the internet, yes, you can steer where now it's going to be discoverable. And we're doing that now with the system identifiers in the scholarly system. And this is where Signals comes in when we get there in like less than a minute. Um, but then how can we say that uh, like which research output is, is relevant to whom and how many and how many are going to click on it and actually read those studies? I don't know. Okay, let's not even go there. <laughs> but, <laughs> because what's what's locally relevant might be a game changer because it might be replicable in other parts of the world and eventually change the world to the better. Where what's considered of international re relevance, which is highly biased at the moment, so depending on who says that or makes a claim of what is and what is not globally relevant, uh, might not have any positive impact or negative uh unintendedly so so i don't know i think we can leave that for another discussion to go into the details but more importantly signals uh, research signals is doing a great job on leveraging integrity through metadata on published research items so mm -hmm. what now and and now we're going back to where i stopped you for a minute on two things and it was like half an hour ago. No, not quite as long. But so what, like, okay, the jump from PRF, okay, it's it's still about integrity. It's still about efficiency in, in publishing. So now what's, at what point did you switch from focusing on the review process and facilitating that towards um, measuring reliability of the research that's being published yeah so i guess it got to this point as i mentioned where um we decided that PRF probably wasn't going to work or it'd be better to spend you know my time looking at a different problem and research integrity was this very current very big problem that publishers were were experiencing but don't so, you just use the opportunity of a trend that uh, unfolded. I mean, it's also a fair argument for building a business, but <laughs> so <laughs> so I guess it is what we decided to to look at, right? Um, and of course, it's important, 
Sure. Right. So, you know, scientific or you know the research literature is kind of like the foundation of of knowledge, mm. right? And so, it's very very important that that's trustworthy. So, you know, if nothing else, it, it should be trustworthy. Um, and things like paper mills, putting in, you know, creating these fake articles that say, you know, this gene is associated with this form of cancer is is really bad, right? This is this isn't something that that should be in the literature. And if we can do something to um to stop that happening, then that that's a good that's a good thing. Mm. So I think there's two things there. There's, there's there's the wanting to do something positive, okay, and have a positive impact, but also doing something where you can execute it and people want it, okay, because that's because you can have like the best, like most altruistic idea, but if nobody wants it, it's not it's not it's not going to happen, right? So, and I mean, this is what I saw with PRF, right? I thought it was a, a good thing to do, but but if people don't want it, then it's not it's having no impact. Um, and so yeah, so you know this this problem of, of research integrity. Or, well, to be honest, I think research integrity is maybe the wrong. It's the word we use because it's it's what the industry uses, but but it's, it's it's maybe not the quite right word. I think research integrity is a very broad thing that mm. includes things like conflict of interest, um, you know, articles having ethics statements, and that's not really what we're looking at. We're looking at research fraud. Mm. So or publication fraud, so where people are knowingly creating, you know, fake articles and manipulating the publishing process to get that published. Um, that, that's what we're trying to help publishers stop. Um, mm. So, but yeah, so we spent... Yep. Well, what we've seen our paper mills, I mean, fraud has always been there to probably a lesser extent because the pressure was not as high to publish, to build your career as a researcher. So I don't know, it's not a blame game here in the show, but okay. But I'm saying, okay. So there's paper mills, there's, um, there's discussions around predatory journals, which I... I could give you plenty of examples that most of these are actually mislabeled because they mm -hmm. again biases. I don't know if the same is true for paper mills. I haven't gone into that as much. I mean, I understand the concept of yeah, just getting published for the sake of it, but uh, so I mean it's also a way. Like I don't know, can the paper mills that you've seen? I mean, are there? It's not actual physical mills that stand somewhere. It's people who are computers help people, others get published. Or no, the, the whole concept of paper mills is fake articles, right? It's basically um, fabrication of, of data, is that it? Yeah, exactly. So these are, there are businesses that just create, you know, something that looks like a research article that contains something that looks like research. And then they send this to a journal, um, and maybe they add peer reviewers to the process somehow, and and then they get it published. Well, before they get just before they get it published, they sell the authorship. Okay, oh, okay. so they will send around. You, you know, you can people sometimes every now and then put these emails on Twitter. Um, you can see them where they say, you know, we have uh, we have two articles ready for publication in a. Yeah. Um, in an Elsevier journal, and it's got an impact factor of four, 
um do you want to we've got like first place and second place authorship for mm -hmm. sale um and yeah and, and people you know buy their spots and then it gets published but there's nothing yeah th these articles have no truth in them right? there's no research in them they're mm -hmm. just it's just made up um okay. yeah thanks so yeah that, that's what we're trying to help publishers to identify our big other problem is it really? I mean, it's growing, but if you would put numbers to it, is it more than one percent of the published of the detectable digitally detectable research that you can find? So or it's hard to know how much of it is um, because we haven't found it all yet. Um, so if you ask, for example, so Adam Day, he is the kind of is the founder of, of another. Um, startup in this space called Clear Skies, mm. um, and he's done, you know, some analysis on basically all the literature in the last. I'm not sure how long, but um, let's say the last decade. Mm -hmm. um, and so he's he's you know he looks at say these are the articles we know that are papers, um, mm. and then he looks for articles that share you know how similarities those articles so also have like a high likelihood of, of being a paper mill. And what he's found as a lower bound is it's probably three percent of 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 the literature, right? So, so something like seventy to one hundred fifty thousand articles published last year um, were complete, like just fake, and and that's the lower bound. So this is it's a you know three percent of articles is, is quite a lot, um, and and yeah, it's kind of unacceptably <laughs> an unacceptable <laughs> amount. I, I would say yeah, that's crazy, like even. The close to one percent is also too much. I mean, that's mm -hmm. crazy. Um, okay, so now signals comes to help mm -hmm. us detect that as researchers, so we, that we don't rely on literature that's actually fake, but also editors to warn. Okay, it's a submission, but also mm -hmm. um, doesn't either doesn't exist or bought this article which presents data that doesn't exist. I mean, that mm -hmm. exists but it's fabricated. Um, and then you, so you can detect um, self-citations, retractions, and then screening community comments for their um, approval or uh, contrary statements. Yeah, so we're mainly focused currently, we're focused on these kind of like negative signals. So, so usually things that are, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. <laughs> So we, we've looked at, say, the set of known paper mill articles. Um, and, you know, we kind of had a hypothesis-driven approach to this. Like, we think we'll see mm. this thing happen, right? We'll, we'll, see the, we'll see something in the metadata. And through that, we were either right or wrong, or we just saw trends that we didn't expect to see. Mm. So, uh, and one, I think one really kind of nice example of this is we were... We wanted to look at self-citations, right? So self-citations are really useful because they allow us to see um, previous output by the authors in a way that doesn't get into the kind of author disambiguation problem. Mm. So what I mean by that, if that you know is unclear, is if, if you want to look up an author uh, and you go on, say, Google Scholar or Scopus, um, we haven't really solved the problem of of you know getting it just their research and all of their research so 
it may be a merged together of different, you know, multiple John Smiths, um, or it might not be their entire work. So, so this can be unreliable. But this is what um, but by happen, right? Where Orchid but Orchid, but Orchid doesn't do this too well. I mean, Orchid has currently because you can make there are multiple orchids for you know the same person yeah. um and it depends if you know that journal pushes the uh publication to that that person's orchid account whatever so it, say there's 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 multiple yeah people so they uh, it's not it's not solved the problem it could i think if, if everyone if everyone tomorrow decided that i'm going to make one single orchid account, but mm. unfortunately that that hasn't that hasn't happened. Mm. Um, that's not to say orchid isn't useful. It it very much is for for lots of other reasons. Good for for this purpose. But the the author disambiguation problem it, it doesn't solve. Um, so if we look at a reference list and John Smith references John Smith, it's highly likely that that is the same person. Okay, mm. so. Um, so we look at the reference list, we take, you know, what are the self-citations, and then we get lots of information out of that. Okay, so we can see um, what they've previously published, what areas they were in, you know, we can see is it similar to this article. Um, we can see where people have collaborated before, we can see what journals they've published in, we can see if they have any retractions. Okay, so wait, um, so the self-citation is not bad on its own, because, I mean, of course, at a certain degree, it becomes uh, misconduct, because you shouldn't only cite yourself. But exactly, so self-citations are normal. Yeah. Um, it's, it's completely, like, most research is building on top of your previous research, right? <laughs> so, so we expect to see self-citations. Um, we would, we put a, you know, we put a red flag on something if it has more than say um 35 percent mm. yeah so it would get a yellow flag on signals if it was more than 25 percent, or a red flag if it's more than 35 um you know the future of the publishers using this platform they can adjust that to, to whatever they see fit but but yeah so some amount of them is normal and a good thing if they had 90 percent self-citations that's obviously probably <laughs> a problem um Sure, so. And it's probably trying to, you know, artificially inflate the citation count. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but what we saw in loads of these paper mill articles, so like 70, 80% of them, is they had no self-citations. Mm -hmm. And this is really strange, right? You don't get this in in like a, a legitimate yeah. journal because... Unless you're a PhD student, you're just starting off and your supervisor allows you to, well, to be first author. Right. Yeah, but so this is, but this is this no self citations of any author on the paper. Okay. Well, right. So it makes sense. I mean, it happens all the time that, that one out of five, say, authors has no self citations in a paper. Isn't that's it, that's not abnormal. Just, uh, so how about humanities and social sciences? Aren't these people publishing on their own most of the time? But that's not the bulk of the research output. So this isn't good look. We don't we haven't spent a lot of time looking mm -hmm. at that area. I, I don't think the paper mill hmm, I could be wrong, but I, I don't think the problem is as, as prevalent in that. Um but we would have to we would have to test that. We've because we've, we've been very focused on um you know the kind of STM, I guess, yeah. at, at the no, beginning. That makes sense. That's also where most of the research proliferation. Mm -hmm. so. 
Well, yeah. Yeah, and so we saw this signal, right, of 80% of these paper articles have no cell citations. And, <laughs> and this makes perfect sense because they're not writing the article, right? A paper mill writes the article and then it gets public, well, it's going to get published and then they buy the authorship. And so there's no reason why they would have been referenced. Mm. Um, and so this signal, this alone is not indicative that something is, you know, a fraudulent piece of research. But when you start adding that with the other signals that we have, it starts to make quite a clear picture that you have, you know, a paper mill article or let's say if you look at a journal, an average legitimate journal, it's going to have like 10, 20% of articles with no self-citations. But when you have 80% of those journals showing that, sorry, 80% of those articles having that, then it's quite clear that there's some kind of problem. Um, so amongst other, you know, things that we found in paper mills, uh, we, we've turned those into signals and then we can put an article, whether it's published or, or a submission uh, through signals and we can, yeah. To take a look at what they are. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, that's really cool. And then the other one like, I like best, actually, well, I, I see that there's a lot of value in that, but my favorite is the retraction detection because mm -hmm. that's really painful. Well, one thing is that some publishers take forever to enforce a retraction after being notified, and that might be that, that usually has many reasons where no individual is to be blamed, but just a matter of, yeah organizational uh, set workflows too much work to do kind of overwhelm whatnot but in some like there's a few cases that much of what you also find on twitter where uh, an editorial board is being notified of a retracted article or uh, article, an article to be retracted and then it takes them like up to 10 years sometimes even one or two years even six months can be harmful to society like as we've seen with the pandemic um, but now once an article is retracted, it doesn't mean that the issue is solved because the thing is still out there and is already, is already, has already been cited, who knows how many times and is still being taken for granted and probably so, but then how does, how... so yeah, but I think like to then go to the signals website and then see, oh, actually been retracted and this can probably be also plugged into publishers pages right and also preprint archive mm -hmm. whatever other systems to flag the retraction yeah yeah absolutely so it's it's really easy to see you know we're attracted and, <clears throat> and what i think is even kind of cooler than that is a is a feature that we added kind of in the last couple of weeks well let's go when we only launched kind of three weeks ago um but since then uh, we added a new signal which allows you to see when there are retractions in the reference list. Okay, mm -hmm. so um, so you could have one article that, that references three retracted articles. Okay, and so, um, so it's very important then that you don't <laughs> kind of reference that part of the article that references the retracted articles. Wow. Um, and wow. again, okay. is, is it- wow. Okay, but then that's actually solving the whole chain of errors that occur by having a retraction out there. Mm -hmm. Nice. Well done. And so, well, this is also a really good way of, so, so sometimes these are like honest retractions, right? So it's just where um, they weren't aware that there was the mistake. And that is some of the, the retractions. Um, what is 
happening more and more now is we're seeing retractions of these paper mill articles. And so there's, you know, there's there's tons of paper mill articles that haven't been retracted. The, the majority of them have not been retracted. Um, and they're typically quite hard to find because, as I mentioned before, they, they look real. Um, mm. They're very hard to distinguish from a real article. Mm. Um, unless, unless you're, you know, a real expert in the area. So the, an expert's going to know, but to the average kind of editor or, or someone in a adjacent field of research, it's, it's very difficult. Mm. Um, so, but what can happen is with those paper mills, they don't just sell articles, they sell citations. Okay, so every time a paper mill article is published, it references other paper mill articles to increase their citation count. So every time a paper mill article is retracted, we can then identify other paper mill articles because we can see that they reference, you know, multiple retracted paper mill articles. <laughs> so every time it's retracted, it can point us towards even more, which they can then retract to find even more. <laughs> um, so yeah, so this is this is so the following retractions are like a good thing in this sense. But yeah, but at the same time, we're helping people not honestly reference them or not even you know not spend their time on those articles um because, you know time for the you know researchers is limited um and you know they, they don't want to be spending time reading and digesting something that's just made up mm. oh, wow okay oh, that's so exciting that's that's really cool that's so useful how's it being received we met at the ape conference in berlin where you also I mean, I, I saw um, how the audience at the conference received it very positively, um, signals as a service, after your pitch, after your short presentation. Um, and how's your response as you, yeah, as you reach out to publishers, to researchers, to adopt the, the service, to use the tool? To... Yeah, so super, like very <laughs> positive, kind of overwhelmingly almost. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so APE, we presented uh, this alongside several other startups. And then there was like a vote. And as was voted, you know, the best idea and uh, who, you know, the audience would most like to collaborate with. So this is this is hugely positive. Um, we have, you know, speaking to a lot of publishers now. Um, I mean, publishers are the first people we're trying to, to provide this to. Um, it of course makes sense that kind of institutions and researchers and, and funders may also it, be useful to them too. But publisher where we're starting to so, say, and we're getting yeah very positive response. We're just getting people started on on trials of it. You know, we're very focused on uh, created a journal dashboard where um, yeah they, a publisher can can access their journals. They can look at their previous output, see uh, kind of risk levels of those. Um, so we can help them identify, you know, what is maybe a fraudulent article that they need to um, investigate and, and then maybe retract. Um, so yeah, so so far, like very very positive. I said uh, very different from my experience with Pira. <laughs> I, I always felt, you know, like I was really pushing Pira, yeah. um, whereas it feels almost like signals and it's like pulling me <laughs> um, along with it. It's um, so yeah, well, you know, it's early days, so it's wait and see, but uh, but yeah, very, very, very positive so far. But it's interesting because I was going to say, well, maybe obviously because um, maybe it is more threatening as a problem and more in people's necks 
the whole paper mills and fake article submission kind of thing. But you would think that peer review, but I think, I don't know, maybe you shouldn't, or I shouldn't try to make sense of why peer review was harder to to take to the market compared to signals. But both are- but It's like I mentioned yeah. earlier, right? It's, it's this, signals is addressing a very specific problem, mm -hmm. which is a very big problem and, and current problem. So publishers need to not put, <laughs> it's a problem if they publish fraudulent research. Okay, the, the, the impact this has had on Hindawi is enormous, right, and, and to Wiley. Mm -hmm. um, every other publisher knows that they can't have that happen, but they don't have a means to stop it happening. Mm -hmm. um, you know, research every teams are small, they, they don't necessarily have the tools available to them to, to, to identify these articles. And so that's what we're providing. Um, whereas with peer review, it was a, you know, let's change the entire process. It wasn't, it wasn't a fix to a specific problem. It was a trying to change the way peer review is done. Um, also, that, that's, I mean, yeah, a little different. Wasn't it for an, for an editorial team, wouldn't it take a lot of the burden of their table by outsourcing the management of the peer review? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is something we thought um you know I think peer review letting go of control not having ownership yeah. anymore of that database of researchers that are knowledgeable about the content i don't know yeah i mean we found that ultimately i mean my, my assumption at the beginning was that editors would want would be most interested in curating research mm -hmm. okay so so if they had peer review reports and they had the manuscript they could then you know, say this is what we think is the most interesting and for our community. Uh, but actually, it turns out that that owning the peer review process, even though it's very difficult and very time consuming, is very important to editors. Yeah. Um, and they didn't want to outsource it. So again, it, it didn't solve a problem for them. Yeah, got it. Okay, it makes sense. Because it's also content driven, and and that's the exciting part of doing the work. It's, yeah. Okay. Whereas the detection mechanism is more technical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we, we do, we're supporting them. We're helping them do their job yeah. now oh. rather than taking their job away. Right? So your clients would be publishers mostly, publishers, editorial teams of journals. Also research. Yeah, at this stage. Yeah, so a researcher could today use it, right? We have researchers signed up. Um, a research can search an article um and check you know it's it's uh, it's legitimacy um like i said it, it could help them to uh not mm. have to go and read and or reference an article that is potentially um fraudulent or have you know all the problems with it so we'd recommend um, i as a trainer could recommend to researchers as you do your literature search you find articles that sound and look interesting um do your double um due diligence check if it's mm -hmm. a fake article by using signal yeah okay. and that's yeah, absolutely for them mm -hmm. yeah okay but then to search a single article yeah so for publishers obviously because that's a bulk of the work and they would then pay be paying clients that's how yeah so they can now access you know they would they would have access to like the dashboard where they can see the previous works um and then get say alerts whenever something changed. So, um, you know, the metadata is evolving 
uh, with kind of citations and retractions and, and engagement. So if something changed in their previous publications, they would, you know, they could find out before anyone else finds out so they can you know, take control of that situation. Um, but we could also provide this, you know, this check at the point of submission. Um, and so, you know, when a submission was given to a journal, uh, whichever editor looks at that first could see, you know, the, the signals that the article has. And in some cases, you know, they might reject at that point because it's clearly, you know, a paper article and shouldn't, shouldn't even go to peer review. Um, so yeah, so that would be a, another service that, that the publishers would have. Yeah. Um, and you could also imagine this for institutions, right? So an institution could could understand um, the legitimacy of, of their output as well and make sure that the work they're doing is all sound because that's something that they want to want to have happen. Right. Oh, okay. Now that makes sense because I also saw like if on the on the about, us, about page for signals, says well, the section for self citations, rejections and in institutions and journals, what you just said, like institutions can be made up and journals can be made up. So there's also something that you check for. <laughs> but um journals and institutions can also be clients um and using your service to ensure that they're well, the submitting authors, respectively, the um, the staff member are <laughs> publishing in literature journals, or yeah, yeah, publishing literature journals, or making sure that their you know staff are, you know, publishing kind of ethically, let's say, um, but that they're not being mentioned as a presumably fake journal. Um, is that something that could be fixed if a paper mill? says oh this research comes from that institution where it actually doesn't can the institution then use signals to kind of verify that what research is actually being done at their venue Does that make sense i think if i understand your question correctly i think so so a um i mean yeah a risk actually is that a re that a paper mill um puts on an author from you know harvard university and they, they just make up they do they, they just pick a researcher and mm -hmm. they add their name onto it and then um suddenly that article says it's from this researcher at harvard uh and they would have no idea of that right and this researcher would probably have no idea of that mm -hmm. uh, and there's nothing so in some cases there's no mechanism for that not to happen mm -hmm. um and a lot of publishers they only communicate with the corresponding author. Okay, mm -hmm. so they, they never need those other authors to prove that that um, that they're on the article. So by providing, I mean, this is just one use case, but by providing an institution with the signals dashboard, they could see when they've like a, a high risk article is published mm -hmm. under their institution, um, and they could quit very quickly. You know, kind of contact the publisher and say that isn't that author is not on this article mm. um and that would lead to two good things one that the the kind of institution isn't wrongly on fake articles and also the publisher could very quickly identify that that was a, a fake article yeah and could retract it quickly nice oh so glad signals exist thanks for bringing it to the world <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no worries <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, as a trainer and consultant, I make sure people hear of it and use it <laughs> to, the, to the yeah to to the necessary extent and beyond. Um, thank you so much for for sharing all of that with us. Yeah, no problem. We're happy to good to chat about it. And obviously, all the best for the journey with signals now. And I think yeah, it's I think like Pierre from what I've seen has set a great example, and it's either for others to pick up, pick it up, and dust it off maybe a year or two from now, or maybe you find the the what is it the the encouragement again to to try again in a more comfortable time. <laughs> more, <laughs> Yeah, let's, uh, let's wait and see. <laughs> but I think you get your hands full for now. And this. <laughs> so all the best and speak to you soon again. Yeah, thanks. See you soon. Thanks for joining us to listen to this episode. Do let us know what you think. You can email us or connect with us on our social media channels, which you can find on our website at accesstoperspectives.org. Email us at info at accesstoperspectives.org or book a call to explore how we can support you with your research planning, management and publishing. Welcome you again soon for our next episode. Until then, have a great time.